Let's take a Bible, let's open it together, and uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 27, okay? And if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we want you to borrow our copy of the Bible. It's right on the back of the seat there in front of you. We're going to be on page 211 of our copy of the Bible, or 1 Samuel chapter 27 in your copy of the Bible. You know, life is full of sometimes... Bitter, really, disappointments, isn't it? I mean, there are lots and lots of times that things just don't go the way we want them to. Uh, take, for example, the, uh, the story of Seattle Mariners pitcher Brian Holman. The date was April 20, 1990, and Brian Holman was pitching against the then mightiest team in Major League Baseball, the Oakland A's. He uh, had a perfect game with two outs in the ninth inning. And with two outs in the ninth inning, uh, the uh, A's decided to send up a pinch hitter named Ken Phelps. Now, who ever heard of Ken Phelps? I mean, Holman had already gotten Ricky Henderson out three times. He'd already gotten Jose Canseco out three times. He'd already gotten Mark McGuire out three times. And here comes Ken Phelps. And the cameras were all set up in the locker room. This would be the first no-hitter or perfect game that any Seattle Mariners pitcher had ever thrown. He was one out away from yelling that he was going to Disney World. And so here we are. Ken Phelps comes up to the plate. Holman winds up, throws him the first pitch. You know how this is going to end, don't you? And Ken Phelps proceeds to belt the very first pitch over the right field wall for a home run. Gone was the perfect game, gone was the no-hitter, gone was the shutout, and gone was Disney World by Ken Phelps, of all people. Talk about disappointment. But you know, it could be worse. You say, how? How could it possibly be worse? Well, in 1959, Pittsburgh Pirate pitcher Harvey Haddix threw 12 innings of perfect baseball. He had a perfect game for 12 innings. The problem was that Pittsburgh couldn't score either. So at the end of 12 innings, it was still 0-0 zero to zero against the Milwaukee Braves. And in the 13th inning, after throwing 12 innings of perfect ball, Harvey Haddix lost the game. One to nothing in the 13th inning. He is the only major league pitcher in history to ever throw more than nine innings of perfect ball. And he lost the game. In an interview in 1973 in Sports Illustrated, Haddock said, and I quote, after 15 years, it still hurts to think about it. End of quote. <laughs> See, things don't always go the way you want. Now, that's going to be true of your life. It's true of my life. The real issue is not whether there are going to be things that come along that don't go the way we want and disappoint us. The real issue is how do we keep those things from throwing us into a tailspin? How do we keep those things as Christians from causing us to lose our spiritual focus and to become despondent and then to do foolish and stupid things that we've got no business doing because we begin to panic and we begin to lay hands in the energy of our own wisdom and strength on the situation and we get ourselves out of the pan and into the fire. Well, that's what happens to, happens to David in our passage for today. And we want to look at his experience and then we want to talk about how we can avoid the same thing happening to us. So let's look together. First Samuel 27. Remember now, Saul's been chasing David around for years in the wilderness trying to kill him. And finally, David wakes up one morning and says, hey, wait a minute, enough is enough. I'm tired of living in caves. I'm tired of eking out a living. I'm tired of looking over my shoulder everywhere I go to see if Saul's hiding behind the next rock. Enough is enough. Verse 1. 
So David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Sooner or later, he's going to catch me and I'm going to be dead meat. So he said, the best thing I can do is to escape into the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. David says, you know what? If I defect and I go over to the Philistines, Saul will stop chasing me and I'll be safe. And that's exactly what he decided to do. After years of living in the land and trusting God to protect him supernaturally, he snaps and he says, this is never going to work. I'm going to get killed one day. I need to take this in my own hands and I need to deal with this myself. Verse 2. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, the son, uh, the son of Manoah, the king of Gath. You say, Gath, Gath. I know I've heard that before. Where did I heard that? Well, that was the hometown of a big guy we, we know used to name, be named Goliath. Do you remember Goliath? He was from Gath. You say, Lon, you mean to tell me that David went to the town where Goliath was from and, and, and defected to that king? Yep. It gets worse. Follow along. And, and so David and all of his men, verse 3, settled in Gath with Achish. And each man had his family with him. Verse 4, and when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So then David went to Achish and said, the king of Gath, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? And on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, a little city in southern Israel. And, and David, verse 7, lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. David goes to this Philistine king. He presents himself to this king as, as the servant of this king. He asks for asylum and he says that he will serve this king and he begs for mercy from this Philistine king. Now, the Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel. They, they were dedicated to wiping out the people of Israel off the face of the earth and wiping off the name of the one true God off the face of the earth. And you say, this is where David went and asked for asylum and presented himself as your noble servant to these people? Yep. But it still gets worse. Look at verse 8. Now David sent his men and went, David and his men went up and they raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. These were people, not Jewish people, but other tribes that lived south of Israel. Look at verse 9. And wherever David attacked an area, whenever he did it, he did not leave a man or a woman alive. But he took their sheep and their cattle and their donkeys and their camels and their clothes and he would return. He'd bring all this spoil back to Achish. And when Achish would ask him, where did you get all this stuff, David? David would say, well, I was raiding the Negev of Judah or I was raiding the Negev of Jeremiah or I was raiding the Negev of the Kenites. These are all Jewish areas. He did not leave, David did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say this is what David really did. And this was David's practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. And Achish trusted David. And said to himself, he has become so odious, so offensive, so stinky to his own people raiding the land like that, that he will be my servant forever. Now, do you understand what David is doing here? He's gone and presented himself to uh, Achish as a traitor, uh, to, a, a, as someone who, who is against his people and against Saul, kind of like Benedict Arnold Stein, you know, or something like that. And so now he's got to live up to that. Now he's got to keep the image going. 
And so he's not going to go out and kill his own people. He's not going to go kill Jewish people. So he goes to these innocent villages, people who haven't done a thing wrong. And he not only kills the warriors in these villages, he kills all the women and he kills all the children and he takes all of their possessions and takes them back and presents them to Achish. And when Achish says to him, where'd you get all this stuff? He said, I got it by killing Jewish people. I went into Israel and into Judah and I killed Jewish people. And that's where I got this stuff for you. And Achish said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm sure they hate you so bad now. I'll never have to wonder if you'll be loyal to me. Amazing. This is a disgraceful thing David did. This is a disgusting time in David's life. I mean, he sinks to acting like the lowest thing on the food chain at this point in his life. Lying, scheming, conniving, deceiving, murdering innocent people, and not just once or twice, but for 16 months. Spiritual compromise of the worst kind, living with the Philistines, serving the Philistines, paying allegiance to the Philistines. I read this chapter and I thought, what happened to that guy who walked out against Goliath in faith and said, God will take care of me? Where is that guy? He's not here. Where is the guy who wrote the 23rd Psalm? He's not here. This is not the guy that wrote the 23rd Psalm. What happened to him? And yet God recorded this in the Bible for all of us to read and see. You say, yeah, Lon, I'm curious about that. Why would God do that? I mean, if this is such a bad, ugly time in David's life, why did God write it in the Bible? I mean, why not just kind of... You know, just kind of skip it and, you know, just kind of like pretend, pretend like this didn't happen. Well, you know, what's interesting is that God wrote the worst failures of all of his heroes in the Bible. Peter and Samson and Moses and Elijah, they're all in the Bible for us to read. You say, yeah, why is that? Well, it's very interesting and it's something we ought to stop for just a moment and talk about. You know, when I was doing graduate work at Johns Hopkins University, I had to do a lot of work in archaeology. And one very interesting thing about that you discover from archaeology is that all the official records of the ancient Near East from the time in which the Bible was written, among all of them, they're all sanitized. By that I mean, if you read them, they only record the successes and the victories of their kings and their heroes, never their failure. Uh, it's like reading, it would be like reading the history of Napoleon and it never mentions Waterloo. And, and so uh, when we come to the Bible, however, what we find is that the Bible is unique among all of the official records of the ancient Near East in that the Bible is the only one that records with equal honesty the failings, the shortcomings of its heroes, just like it does their successes. None of those other records do that. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important, friends, because this is one of the greatest confirmations of the authenticity of the Bible. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, one of the important bridges that you have to cross in making that decision is the bridge of whether the Bible is really trustworthy or not. Because the Bible is the only truth source we have about Jesus Christ and about the plan of salvation He offers. And so if you're going to base your whole eternal destiny on what the Bible says, you want to make sure the Bible's right. That's a big bridge to cross. And one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is not just sanitized religious propaganda, but that it really is the truth from Almighty God, is this fact that the Bible does not sanitize the records of its heroes. It records them for you to see in all of its ugliness, because the Bible is not trying to exalt its heroes, it's trying to exalt the living God. 
And it's no threat to the living God, to His character, to be honest about the failings of even His greatest servants. So if you're here and you want to know where real truth is, let me say to you, the Bible presents itself as real truth from God, and one of the greatest proofs is, this is not sanitized religious propaganda, friends. This is the way it really happened. And you can trust the Bible. Well, let's go on, okay? That's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask a really important question, and you know what that question is. What is it? So what? Lon, this makes no difference to my life. I know what David did was awful, but I don't even know a Philistine, Lon. I, I can't even, this is ridiculous. This makes no difference to my life. No, wait a minute. I think it makes all the difference in the world. Because the way David responded to disappointment and to heartache and to struggle really provides a lesson that you and I need to talk about. I was coming out to the gym the other day, and there was a bumper sticker on a car that I noticed, and I even went back to look at it a second time to make sure I got it right. Here's what it said. It said, life is 15% what happens and 85% how we react to it. That's a good bumper sticker. And here in 1 Samuel 27, David definitely fails the 85% test. I mean, the man lost all spiritual focus. You say, yeah, what happened to David? Well, he lost his focus, friends. He began to panic. He began to let fear dominate his life. He began to take matters in his own hands. He, instead of trusting the same God who had kept him safe for years and delivered him from Saul, suddenly he took his eyes off the Lord completely. It's like spiritually he had a total eclipse. It's like his spiritual compass lost all sense of what direction was north, and he began to run like a spooked chicken and begin to try to figure out how to provide for his own safety and his own energy and in his own strength, and it led to lying and to cheating and to murder and to conniving and to deception. I mean, it, he went down the slippery slope once he did that. Now, I've got to tell you, as a Christian, I, I understand where David was. Maybe you do. I understand where David was. Remember how I told you a couple of weeks ago we had this house we put a contract on and we were all excited about it because we're trying to find a new house that fits the needs of my daughter who has special needs, but we also have three teenagers and there just aren't that many houses that work. And we found one. We were so excited and we lost it in a contract bidding war. And, uh, you know, usually if something like this happens, I was really disappointed. I'm the first one in our family to go, it's okay. It's all right. You know, God's going to take care of us. God's got something better for us. We just need to focus on God. But I have to tell you on this one, folks, I completely zoned out. I lost my spiritual focus. It's like somebody hit me upside the head with a brick and sent me into a tailspin. I was angry. I was upset. I kept bringing it up. I kept stewing over it. I kept chewing on it. I was like, rah, 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 rah. I was grouchy. I was snapping at people. Brenda came up to me and said, Lon, you're the one who's supposed to keep the rest of us in this family propped up and focusing on God. She said, but I feel like we're having to keep you propped up. She said, now you need to get a grip on yourself. I said, well, thank you for the input. <laughs> but she was right. She was right. And I had to go back to my family a week later and I had to apologize to my whole family. And say, guys, I'm really sorry. I don't know what happened to me. It's like, I, I don't know, it's just like I went into a tailspin and I completely lost my sense of which direction was up spiritually. I don't know what happened to me. And unless I miss my guess, I'll bet some of you folks have been right there where, you, where, where all of a sudden you just panic. All of a sudden you just go into a tailspin. I'm never going to get married. Where's everybody going to marry me? I'm not getting any younger. You know, where do you think I'm ever going to get married? I'm never going to find a husband. I'm just going to take the first thing that comes along because I'm never going to get married. You've been there? 
I'm never going to find the right job. I've sent out 50 resumes. I'm never, this is horrible. I'm going to be unemployed the rest of my life. This is going to be, I'm going to be stuck in this job. I hate the rest of my life. I got to do something. I got to do something. I can't wait on God to do something. I got to do something. Been there. We're never going to sell this house. I'm going to die in this house. They're going to bury me in my bedroom in this house. This house is never going to sell. Why don't we just give it away? Give it to Salvation Army. We'll get a tax write-off. Can't wait on God for this. We got to do something. You been there? Sure you have. That's where David was. Now, friends, when that starts happening to us, when we take our eyes off God and we start spinning like that out of control, the real issue is how do we keep from going to the place where David went, to the place where David does foolish and stupid things? Well, I got three principles to give you. Because it says in 1 Samuel 30, later on, that David encouraged himself in the Lord. That that's how he got himself refocused, is he encouraged himself in the Lord. And I want to give you three principles for how you can encourage yourself in the Lord when a disappointment comes along and hits you upside the head like a brick and sends you spinning. All right? Three principles. Number one. Principle number one is to remind yourself of the promises of God. Second Peter chapter one, verse four says this. It says, God has given us his very great and precious promises. Promises like what, Lon? Well, promises like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God. Even disappointment? Absolutely. That's a great promise. Proverb uh, promises like Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plan I have for you, says the Lord. A plan for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You say, you mean, Lon, God's telling me that even disappointment works into His plan to give me a future and a hope and for my good? That's His promise. Promises like Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, Jesus said. Therefore, I may confidently say, what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. That's a great promise. And friends, Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have these promises as an anchor for our soul. An anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Do we have any fisher people here? Fishermen or women? Any, any of you guys fishermen or women you love to fish? Okay. Well, I don't. Okay, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, it's boring. And number two, it's smelly. See, Jewish people, we don't go fishing unless it's catered. See, that's kind of how we are. If it's catered, we go. If it's not catered and somebody else isn't doing the worms, we don't go. And so I never did a whole lot of fishing growing up. Well, anyway, I married into this Gentile family that loves to fish. And so I've been out a few times in a little boat doing the, you know, doing the thing. Now, one thing I noticed, if you get out into a lake or you get out into a stream or something and you find where fish are, you want to stay right at that spot, right? You don't want to drift. You want to stay put. And, and, and yet, if the winds are blowing or the waves are going pretty strong, it'll blow you off of that spot. And you've got to keep coming back and coming back. And the way to solve that problem, you know what it is, is you throw out a what? An anchor, right. And what the anchor does is the anchor keeps you from being at the mercy of the wind and the current. It keeps you right where you want to stay. Now, when the Bible says that the promises of God are like an anchor for our soul, what the Bible is telling us is that the promises of God will protect you and me from being at the mercy of the winds and the waves of the circumstances of this life. And if we'll hold on to the promises of God, it will keep us positioned where we want to stay as men and women of God and from being blown off course like David was. Doesn't mean the wind stops blowing. Doesn't mean the current stops going. It means you stay put in spite of it because you're hanging on to the anchor, the promises of God. 
And you say, well, Lon, how am I going to remind myself of the promises of God? Well, there's lots of ways to do it. Read the Bible. That's a good one. Uh, memorize those promises. Write them on a three by five card. Commit them to memory. Put them on the dashboard of your car. Get somebody to calligraphy them and put them on the walls of your house or go to a Christian bookstore and buy them. Put them on the walls of your house. I have the promises of God at every corner. When I go around a corner, I see a promise from God. Have them on your desk at work. Get a calendar where you get a new one every day or every month. Now, another great way is to listen to Christian music. You know, uh, and let God sing His promises back to you. When we were going through the worst time in our life with my daughter Jill, the first couple of years, we weren't even sure she was going to live. We had a good Christian friend come over and say, you don't have a CD player in this house set up to a stereo system. you got to have music in this house. You need to have God singing you His promises 24 hours a day if you're going to make it. And she bought us one. And she was right. Man, the difference that makes is amazing. Send yourself with the promises of God. They are an anchor that will keep you from getting blown off course like David got blown off course. Second principle is rest in the sovereignty of God. And when we say God is sovereign, what we really mean is that God is in total control of your circumstances, my circumstances. It means that we are not helpless pawns. It means that we are not victims of bad luck. It means that a loving God is actively using the circumstances that we find ourselves in to get us precisely where He wants us to get in His plan for our life. And folks, after some circumstance has come along and has knocked you into a tailspin, I'm telling you the key to regaining spiritual equilibrium is to look at those circumstances, that disappointment, through the lens of the sovereignty of God. And if you do, it changes how that disappointment looks. One of the greatest missionaries we ever sent out from America was a fellow named Adoniram Judson. Judson left in 1812 from Massachusetts to go join a man about whom he had read, a man named William Carey. William Carey, the father of modern missions, was a cobbler in England who went to Calcutta, India as the first by-faith missionary in the foreign age. And, and, and Adoniram Judson had read about him. He was inspired by his story. And he and his new bride, Anne, left Massachusetts to go join uh, uh, Carey in, in Calcutta. Well, when they got there, they had a rude awakening because the British East India Company said, you can't stay here. You're an American. We don't want you here. As a matter of fact, we don't want you in any country in the Far East where we have anything to say about it. And frankly, they had much to say about it in just about every country in the Far East in 1812. And so William Carey, this older, seasoned man of God, in order to test Judson, Judson, said to him, and I quote, he said, why don't you just admit that it's hopeless and just give up and go home? And here's what Judson said, and I quote. He said, we know that God is in control and that he is using even these disappointing circumstances to direct our path, just like he directed Paul to Macedonia. We are not going to give up. We are not going to go home. End of quote. He was looking at his circumstances through the lens of the sovereignty of God. And he was saying, I don't care how disappointing this is. And it is. We traveled halfway around the world. And it's pretty disappointing that we can't do this. But we know God is in control. We know this is no accident. And we're not giving up. And we're not going home. We're going to follow God with this. And we're going to see where it leads. He got on the last ship out of Calcutta before his time ran out, before the British East India Company was going to throw him out. 
He spent three weeks in a monsoon offshore before he could touch land again. And when the ship finally was able to drag itself to land, it landed in Rangoon, Burma, one of the very few countries in the Far East at that time that the British East India Company had no control over. And he got off the ship, he and his wife, Anne, and he spent the next 35 years in Rangoon, Burma. He translated the entire Bible into Burmese, lying on his back for two years in prison with his feet in stocks, elevated off the ground, only his shoulders and his head touching the ground. He would translate it laying on his back and he would hide the copy in the pillow overnight so the guards wouldn't take it away from him until his wife Anne could come and smuggle it out little piece by little piece. By the way, it's the same copy of the Bible that is used in Burma today, the one Adoniram Judson translated. By the time his 35 years were over, he had personally lived over 7,000 Burmese to Jesus Christ. He had personally established over 63 churches in Burma. And one of the people that he led to Christ was a visiting businessman to Rangoon from up in the hills, a tribe called the Karen tribe, K-A-R-E-N. He met Adoniram Judson in 1837. Adoniram Judson led him to Christ. He took the gospel back to the Karen tribe. And if you go to Burma today and you go up into the hills to the Karen tribe, you will find they have hundreds of thousands of believers there. They have Christian elementary schools, Christian high schools, Christian colleges. They have self-supporting churches and they send missionaries throughout all of Eastern Asia. All because one businessman met Adoniram Judson 150 years ago in Rangoon. Now, here's my question. Was God in total sovereign control of what happened in Calcutta to Adoniram Judson? You bet he was. Was Adoniram Judson right in believing that his disappointment in Calcutta was merely God's doorway to an even greater plan for his life? You bet he was. God didn't want Adoniram Judson in Calcutta. He wanted him in Burma. And he used disappointment as the doorway to get him there. And the reason Adoniram Judson was able to achieve that plan of God in his life was because he didn't panic, but he looked through at his disappointment through the lens of the sovereignty of God. And friends, your disappointments are the same things. They're doorways that God has in His perfect plan. And if you'll look at those disappointments through the lens of the sovereignty of God that He's in control, then God will take you and get you right where He needs to get you. Principle number three, and finally is that we should remember God's provision for us in the past. We should remember how God has taken care of us in the past. You know, most of us as Christians have very short memories. God does something wonderful for us. God does something even beyond what we can believe for us. And, and then as soon as the next crisis hits, wham, we are whining, complaining, griping, we're fretting, we're, we're doing everything, we're accusing God, we're ready to take things in our own hands, we're panicking. Friends, we need to elongate elongate our memory. See, this is why in the Bible, in the Old Testament, everywhere God did something great for the Israelites, you know what He told them to do? He said, I want you to take a bunch of rocks and I want you to set up a big altar over here. I want you to take a bunch of rocks, I want you to build a big monument over there. You say, yeah, Lon, I always wondered about that. I mean, what's the big deal with a bunch of rocks? Well, they weren't just meant to be a bunch of rocks. Those monuments, those altars, were meant to be neon signs that every time the Israelite looked at them, they were blinking out a message. They were blinking out the message that said to the Israelites, Remember! Remember, remember what I did for you back then. Well, I'm the same God now, and I can do it for you now. You just need to trust me, remember. 
And you know, as I struggled losing this house and letting it slip by, God and I had one of these very similar conversations where he said to me, Lon, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know, God, I don't know what's wrong with me. He said, Lon, well, don't you remember what I've done for you? I mean, just think of the National Wildlife Federation property. You looked at building after building after building after building for two years. You wanted this one. You wanted that one. You thought that one would work. And what did I do? I kept saying, no, Lon, wait, not yet. Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. Uh Uh-uh. You remember that? And when you were willing to back off and trust me, look what I did for you. I gave you something better than all those buildings put together. Now, Lon, don't go getting spiritual amnesia on me, son. You need to remember that I'm the same God who did that with the property here, and I can do it with a house. You 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 need to remember what I've done. So, friends, I just want to tell you, if you happen to come over to the National Wildlife Federation property one day and you go back in the woods and you see me back there putting rocks together into a big old pile, you're going to know exactly what I'm doing, right? You're going to understand. And you know what? There are some areas in your life where God wants you to go back mentally and make a rock pile and be able to look back and say, yeah, look what God did there and look what God did here and look what God did there and look what God did there. God's the same. Why am I panicking in light of everything God has done for me? Why didn't David do that? I don't know, but if he would have, he wouldn't have ended up doing what he did. Three principles. That when you get hit upside the head by a brick, and you're tailspinning in your Christian life, three principles that will pull you out of that tailspin and refocus your life and set your gyroscope back right. Principle number one, remind yourself of the promises of God. They are an anchor to the soul that will keep your boat steady. Number two, Rest in the sovereignty of God. Remember, your disappointment, your heartache, your tough situation is just a doorway God's going to use into his perfect plan. You've just got to trust him. And principle number three, remember what God did for you in the past. Don't get spiritual amnesia. Go back and revisit some of those rock piles and use them as a motivator to trust God in the future in light of what he's already done for you in the past. I got to tell you, I'm doing a little better. Really, I am. I'm doing better. And the reason I'm doing better is because of these three principles. I've gone back and practiced them day after day after day, and they work. And friends, if you will practice them, they will pull you out of a tailspin if you're in one. And they'll keep you from going into one when things hit your life you weren't expecting, if you'll just learn to make them the way that you respond to disappointment. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, you know that uh, for us as human beings, disappointment's hard to deal with. When things don't go the way we want, it's easy for us to turn sour in our attitude, to turn sour in our walk with you, to begin panicking and fretting, mumbling and grumbling and taking matters in our own hands, Lord. We're human. That's very easy for us. And as we've seen with David today, that leads down the slippery slope to real trouble. So I want to pray that you would use what we've learned here today to insulate and protect us, God, from ourselves. Help us use these principles as a sieve through which we pass every disappointment, every heartache, everything that doesn't go the way we want. And Lord, we know that if we'll do that, by the time they come out, 
of these three principles, they won't be the danger to our souls that they are if we refuse to pass them through these principles. So change our life with what we've heard here today. And for people who, like me, have been in tailspins lately, I pray you would use these principles to help get our focus back on God, to right our compass, to pull us out of those tailspins for you, Lord. Change the way we live because of what we've learned today here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.